This episode is sponsored by Launch. Are you an insurance agent that is tired of quoting business to try and find a better premium to win new deals? Are you looking for a way to differentiate and stand out from your competition? Well, look no further than Launch. Launch is an industry-leading software platform that gives you pre-built assessments that you can walk through with your prospect. Launch automatically calculates your prospect's risk score, and this allows you to show your prospect the areas you can fix to negotiate better premium and coverage with underwriters. Offer more value to your clients, turn missed sales into closed business, and most of all, become a better advisor to your clients. Visit getlaunch.io today to get more information on how you can use Launch to win more BORs starting right now. That's getlaunch.io to learn more. Welcome to the Getting Past the Premium Podcast, where we focus on breaking down risk management problems bit by bit until we find a solution. If you would like to discuss anything you hear on GPP with us, please reach out using the links in the description. Enjoy today's episode. Welcome to the show, Dean. Thanks for hopping on. Thanks for thanks for having me, Elliot. Good to be with you guys. Yeah, Dean, good seeing you again. Yeah, you as well, Ryan. Thanks. You got some uh, big travel coming up to Europe, so that's exciting. Uh, maybe with that context in mind, tell everybody kind of what you do, who Assurex is. Um, you know, kind of start there, and and uh, then we'll we'll jump into the show. Yeah, sure. Thanks. Uh, appreciate it, Elliot. So, um, Dean Hildebrandt, President and CEO of Assurex Global. Ashrex Global is the largest um, consortium of brokers, privately held brokers in the world. So we work with 50 North American firms and and 50 international firms, so roughly 100 partner firms. Um, The firms actually own us. Ashrex is an entity owned by the partner firms. They are our only clients and they are our only shareholders. So um, we work incredibly closely with those privately held firms, building tools and resources to help them compete um, very effectively uh, against the likes of Marshville Sayan and, and all the big brokers in the world. So um, our constituency is pretty narrow. We work with with privately held brokers and 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 a very select few of them. Um, uh, but it's a great vantage point in the industry. It's truly a passion project. Yeah. Absolutely. And then in a prior life, you have had a variety of different roles, right? But you've been in, in agencies, you've ran agencies, you've kind of done a lot of, of every stage of the growth of an agency, right? Yeah. Guilty as charged, Elliot. I mean, I, I started at a, at an agency that was about a million dollars of revenue when I, when I started there. Can and you tell that story real quick of what you thought you were getting into? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, it, it was it was just a little different than I thought. I when when it was described as a as a ten million dollar agency, I I, I kind of thought that that meant a ten million dollar like a like an uh, like a manufacturing entity or something like that. So a, a pretty substantial entity. Well, it turns out ten million in premium is one million of revenue, which <laughs> meant we had about ten people or twelve people or something like that. So. <laughs> um, the, the entity I joined was, was, uh, a bit different than I, than I necessarily thought coming into it. I just really didn't have much experience in this industry at all. So I, so I didn't know, um, the gentleman I worked with though, a guy named Rick Amon, phenomenally good man and, and, and really great business partner for a long time. And, and, um, we, you know, we teamed in that entity for 16 years. We worked together for 16 years, um, and, and when I started, it was just over a million of revenue. When I left, 
Um, it was about 30 million of revenue right in that range. And we sold to a publicly traded bank, associated bank. I actually went forward as the go forward CEO as well and was there for just under five years as well. Um, so I started out at a firm that was about a million of revenue. When I left, my reporting structure was about 140 million of revenue. So 21 years, essentially in the same role, the same time with a phenomenal group of people and just a great team to be with every day. Um, and, and we had a lot of success and a lot of fun with it. But uh, yeah, I've kind of seen all, all parts of our industry from a broker perspective. I certainly have, have been on the distribution side of our business or the good side, as I like to think of it. And, <laughs> and um, yeah, and, and um, I'm now with Asurex. I, I, I was essentially leaving the industry. I was going to go teach uh, college at Arizona State. And, and this opportunity came up to join Asurex. And, and um, you know, the Asurex group of partners is just such a wonderful group of people and, and run great businesses. And, and I just couldn't pass up the opportunity to work for and with that, that constituency. Yeah, definitely. Well, I, I, I'm love, or I love that you dove into that. I think it's such a great story. Um, you know, nobody ever actually thinks they're going to get into insurance and nobody actually knows the ins and outs before you're in it. So, uh, I think that's, that's great to hear. Um, so, so you have the, the ability to kind of see into some of the best run firms, privately held firms in the country with Assurex partners, but also, you know, as you mentioned, a great vantage point of kind of the industry and what you're seeing agencies and companies do uh, right, wrong, or indifferent. Um, you know, where do you kind of see the state of the industry today? And then, you know, where do you see that going in the next three to five years? Yeah, Elliot, I, you know, I, I guess I would preface it by saying, you know, I don't have a crystal ball, right? I mean, I, yeah. I just don't. But, but I think there are some uh, macro trends that, that I believe will absolutely continue and maybe in some cases accelerate. So, um, you know, I, I think a real core macroeconomic trend is consolidation. And I think that will absolutely continue. Um, I don't see that slowing a bit. Um, and, and, and by the way, for the end consumer, um, that's probably not a terrible thing, right? I mean, it, in, in some cases, macroeconomic trends or macro um, uh, technology trends shift business decisions. Um, but, but that doesn't mean a bad thing necessarily for the consumer. That happens across all industries. So I think, I think consolidation will continue in the insurance distribution space just as you've seen it with, you know, your local restaurants or your local law firms or your local gas stations or, you know, there's consolidation across a lot of different industries. Um, if anything, maybe our industry was a little bit of a late adopter to it. But um, so I think you'll see that continue. That doesn't mean, though, that there's not incredible opportunity for really well-run privately held firms, right? I mean, it, it, you think of the best restaurant you go to, and at least, I know for me at least, it's a locally owned restaurant. Um, I think of yep. the law firm I work with. It's a locally owned law firm. I think of the investment advisor I work with. It's a locally owned investment advisory service. Now, they certainly gain scale from a number of different attributes that are, that are available um, relatively openly now. But 
But the best entities that I work with across almost any industry are entities that are locally owned and the people providing the service are actually vested in the relationship. So um, I, you know, I think consolidation is going to continue, but I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing um, either for our industry or for the, for the individual consumer. Um, so I, I think that'll continue. I, I tell you, I think another one is specialization. Um, continually at a lower price point, consumers want someone that understands their business. Um, you know, when I was out very actively seeing clients, um, it was it was difficult ten years ago to go to a preparatory school in the morning and then go to a construction firm in the afternoon, right? The the insurance risk is significantly different. Um, how it's underwritten is completely different, and 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 so to really specialize and understand those businesses um, was a big challenge back then. Well, it's much more so of a challenge now, and I think that consumer at a decreasing price point, wants someone that really knows their business. Um, so we spend a lot of time with the Surex firms, helping them um, really specialize and get good at, at, at specializing in the space. So um, those are just a couple of things that I think I see um, that will actually continue and I think accelerate. Dean, going back real quick to consolidation, from your vantage point, why are firms selling out and consolidating yeah well you know i i think i think ryan it's it's um you know you see bodies of work that will say it's either either fear or greed right it's it's one of those two things and 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 i would submit to you that if you have a well-run organization that is built for the future greed would drive you to keep it not sell it I mean, think about that. If I mm-hmm. if I had an equity that I felt was performing exceedingly well and had a propensity to outperform the market in the future, I sure as heck wouldn't sell it. So, yeah. so I so I I disagree with the thought that greed is driving the sale of great agencies. I I don't buy it. Um, similarly, fear. If you look, I think at at you know roughly the past probably sixty quarters of performance. Insurance distribution has underperformed the market in only two of the last sixty quarters, and and I could be I could be um, wrong on the exact stat, but directionally, I'm quite confident in that. Insurance distribution as a sector continues to outperform, and and so again, I fear doesn't really feel like a very good answer to that either. I, what I would say though, Ryan, is I think there are macroeconomic trends that cause a sale of a business and there are micro trends that cause a sale of a business. Macro would be those things like technology shifts or capital structure shifts or labor market shifts that a firm wasn't prepared for. And now they see a big challenge coming their way because they weren't, they weren't ready for it. And now they're selling their business because of those macroeconomic forces that are now being applied to that business. Um, from a micro perspective, I would say, you know, a great insurance distribution entity generally has three things. They have really strong leadership, highly competent leadership, um, and, and 
and I'll self-promote here for a minute. If you look at the CEOs and C-level of the Shrek's partner firms, they're among the most astute business people I've ever known. I mean, they're phenomenally good business people. So, so strong distribution organizations have great leadership. They have strong strategy. They understand what they're doing and why they're doing it. And they have a capital structure to support their ongoing strategy and leadership evolution. So, um, so they have three things. On a micro sense, if one of those things is missing, then the firm sells. I.e., if if current leader isn't confident that the next leader is going to be able to continue to outperform the market, then they want to take chips off the table. Um, so, so again, I, I think there's macro trends and I think there's micro trends, and and it's I don't think I don't think there's probably any one reason that causes sale. But there's there's big system trends and there's small system trends, and and they all play a role. Um, they all play a role. Yeah, that's great insight. I mean, I kind of put some of those things that you're referencing in the fear bucket, right? Fear of not being able to get access to capital, or the next generation's not going to step up from a leadership perspective, et cetera. That's driving some of it, which is interesting, but. Yeah, and I think Ryan, Ryan, I, I would, I would agree with you there. I think that's exactly what it is. There's a fear of what's coming next, and 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 yet you think about it, entrepreneurs in general are wired and designed such that they say, um, "I'm going to see that fear, and 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 I'm going to accelerate through it." And and um, you know, certainly that's what you guys are doing. I mean, at at Ellerbrock, that, that's what you guys are doing. For sure. Well, yeah, demographics play a huge role and probably your willingness to go through that fire, and depending on how big the fire is and yeah, yeah. <laughs> where you're at no in your life, the life cycle of your career and whatnot. So yeah, no doubt about it. Well, I'd be I'd be curious on to to continue on that note, Dean, of you mentioned, you know, the the leader coming to the end of their career or, you know, second half of their career looking at do I want to take chips off the table? Do I trust in the next layer of leadership, the next generation to continue to outpace market returns? Let's say, um, I feel like, and we talk a lot about that being one of the bigger problems. If, um, if you're in that position as a leader and you don't feel like, or, or haven't planned for that next generation, it's really hard to see how you can get there at that point. Cause now you have, you know, more of a finite number of years to do it. And that in our experience, it does take a long time. You have to start planning that early. And a lot of times what we see in firms we talk to is like leaders got their head down, building their book of business to build the firm and, you know, do all their stuff. And they don't necessarily sometimes come up uh, above the water to say, all right, where, where am I at today? How am I going to be able to perpetuate this thing? And who's coming next? Until they get to that point at the end, we're like, shoot, I really don't want to sell. Like, there's no reason for me to sell other than I don't know who's going to be able to take this thing over. So what's your feeling around that in firms that, that you talk to at the end of the day? Yeah, I, you, you definitely hit on something there, Elliot. And, and, and you know, one of, the, one of the really interesting elements of that to me is there's probably more resource available today to help develop and generate that next generation than there's ever been before, right? I mean, you, 
certainly firms like Marsh Berry, um, Insight, Larry Linney, um, Reagan and Associates, there's a number of firms that do phenomenal work in development of of next generation leaders. Certainly we as Assurex do a great deal of that work. We do it again for a very narrow constituency, but but there's a number of great resources available. Um, but if you're looking at that saying, well, I want to have somebody ready in, in 36 months, um, that's just not reality. That's it's just not reality. It, it it's 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 a process I think that starts you know, 10 years before, before the need is there, not, not two or three. Um, it's got to be part of the strategy going into the organization for the long-term evolution of that firm. Um, so, and, 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 you know, let's be real about it too. If you think about running a firm, an insurance distribution firm or, or, or advisory firm, if you think about running that firm let's say 20 years ago, I don't know what the average size would have been, but it certainly would be dramatically smaller than it is today. So you wouldn't have necessarily the people development issues you have of today, the technology issues you have of today, the capital structure um, sophistication that you need today. So, So it was simply a different game 20 years ago than it is today. And, and so today you need leaders that are able to do all of those things. And oh, by the way, see down the road that that you need to be developing people that will be even more sophisticated 10 years from now. Um, and, and, and it's not for the faint of heart. It's not easy, um, which again, I think goes back to why we see a fair amount of consolidation um, because I think many times firms just aren't ready for it. Yeah. Do you, do you feel right? like... <clears throat> the risk management industry has been slow to reinvent themselves, which could be leading to some of the causes around perpetuation planning and whatnot. And if so, I'd just be curious on your thoughts on like, why, you know, we see the tech industry in so many facets just blowing up and you see how, you know, even banking has gotten very creative and wealth management, financial planning arenas have gotten very creative and have are really out there struggling in the weeds to bring more value. Do you feel like the risk management industry is a step behind and why? I, I, no, I, I don't, I don't think so, Ryan. I, I think, I think some firms, are, are behind. I think some firms certainly um, still see the world as their role is to um, solely distribute the product that the carrier provides to them. Um, but I think the best in their industry, and, and, and there's a lot of them that see the world as being true risk advisors, being true value-added um, service providers, and and um, the firms that understand that, you see them performing at an exceedingly strong level. I mean, it, it, you know, you look at the firms within the AssureX model, you know, whether it's Horton in Chicago or, or RCM&D out in Baltimore or Woodruff Sawyer out in the Bay Area, certainly IMA up in, up in Denver and, and Kansas. I mean, it, 
those firms and, 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 you know, they're just ones that come top of mind, but I could go down the list and, and those firms understand they are a value delivery mechanism and, and, and they're incredibly good at it. Um, they've gone well beyond simply seeing themselves as a purveyor of what the carrier has for them to sell. It's just a different model. So I don't, I don't, I don't think, I think there are portions of the industry, yes, that are behind, dramatically behind. And, and those firms, I think, will be sold. There are also firms that I think are leading the pack well ahead of the race. And, oh. and the value they deliver to clients, I think, is evolving every bit as fast as, as technology and other service industries will allow. Yeah, it's awesome perspective. Yeah, let's dive into that a little bit. What are you seeing in those firms, you know, general trends that they're doing that is that much better, that is leading edge to other firms in our industry? Yeah, well, I, I'd go, I'd go back, Elliot, to a little bit of of what we talked about earlier. I mean, the specialization of some of the firms is just absolutely incredible. You know, they, they, um, and and, you know, I, I don't want to, I don't want to necessarily start naming names that just doesn't quite feel right. But, but we have a number of firms that, that are leading the risk management strategy for industries. So you take something, whether it's something as old school as, as the towing, you know, tow trucks and towing business. And, and we have a couple of firms that, that, quite literally help carriers write the policy and, and understand how that risk should now be insured in today's world or something as new as CBD and understanding how that should be insured. But, and, and so we have firms that are so deep into those industries and specialize so much in those industries that um, when they are out selling to that consumer, selling to that business in that industry, um, they're providing dramatic value to that entity. They they really are. And and you know, I'd go back, Elliot, back to when we had our own agency. We did a lot of life science and and um, tech business. And in that space, we literally had people that had MBAs in that that were selling risk management into that space. So really incredible specialization in that space. Yeah. Yeah. I can definitely see that's been a big trend. I think that, that we've seen too. And it just to everything you talked about earlier too, it just makes a ton of sense. It, the pace is picked up as well. You know, I think 20, 30 years ago, a good new business year talking in revenue, you know, might be 25, 30,000 or whatever, certainly firms doing more than that, you know, you know, now top firms are, their producers are, are expected to hit 100, 125,000 of new business revenue. So I think the pace has picked up, but that, it, which makes it all that much more difficult to be a generalist going from one industry here to another here. You have to reinvent the wheel every time. Yeah. And what we find that causing is that you stay very surface level. You know, you, you can't go deep because you just don't have the time. You You aren't, you aren't exercising the muscle of working with a contractor day in, day out, hearing the language, hearing their problems, all those things. Um, and so it doesn't allow for that more expertise, that more specialization. And so 
I definitely see that as a trend, you know, moving forward and a big opportunity too right now. Because there are firms that are doing it, yes, but the most of the industry, I would imagine, certainly at the firm level, if not the producer level, are generalists, you know, and they're just doing whatever they can and doing whatever walks in the door and and writing insurance, you know. Yeah, and I, I think, think again, good. I think that's going to absolutely continue to to evolve and and specialization and and using data to really inform that specialization is going to continue to accelerate and and be more uh, more of an impact maker in front of the prospect and client. I think that that's critical to where strong production and, and strong advisory service firms evolve. So staying on that note too, if I'm a, if I'm a generalist producer right now, um, are there anything that you could point to, you know, if I wanted to start to specialize, if I, if I, wanted to get more strategic about what I'm doing and, and specializing in, what would be some of the first steps you'd recommend that person do? Yeah, I, you know, it, it's interesting, Elliot, because one of, when I look at firms, and, and you're right, I see a lot of different firms and, and, and truly the best firms in the world, and they really start approaching the business almost like they're, you know, back in graduate school, um, you would literally create business cases for for projects to work on right so and and great producers now i see them preparing their business plan almost like they're preparing a business case you know they're looking at a marketplace they're looking at the total size of that marketplace what the differentiators are what the on a granular level what those prospects look like and what they're looking for what's going to resonate with them and then they put together a marketing plan that really drives success before they get in the door, before they get to the appointment. So, the, you know, really sophisticated producers now, I think, are looking at the world um, through the lens of sophisticated business people. They are um, they're creating a business case and preparing to go serve a constituency um, where they know they're going to have a better than average um, opportunity to win, and and they do it real effectively. Wow, yeah, that's. I think that's spot on. I don't think enough producers kind of take that ownership of that. You know, I think it's a lot of times like, well, my sales manager or somebody will let me know what I'm supposed to do, type thing, um, and, and really taking ownership of that at, at the producer level is so key. Um, and it, it, you mentioned the data side of that. I know that, you know, AssureX as a whole does a lot with data, but I would even take that. A lot of times that seems like a big mountain to climb, right? But if you're a producer, your data can be go out and talk to your book of business already. You know, go out and talk to 10 contractors, go out and talk to the 10 churches that you have, or however your book breaks down and just see what they say, you know, have a different conversation with them. That's your data points. You know, that's how you can figure out, could I build a specialty here? And also, Ryan and I talk about this a lot, so I'll let you chime in too, Ryan. But like, is it better to let your, your niche or your specialization kind of naturally progress? Or is it better to, you know, say, I, I'm starting out day one, I'm going to be a specialist in construction, and I'm going to, you know, build out the steps to do it. Um, both can be effective, you know, but if you're a, a producer seasoned with a book, I think looking at your book, getting out and talking to current clients, seeing what naturally progresses is a good avenue as well. But 
Ryan, I know you and I talk about that all the time too. Yeah, it's a common theme here between Ellie and I and on the podcast. And I guess, <laughs> Dean, I'd ask you um, a question on, on the heels of Elliot's thoughts. Do you, uh, do you feel like a risk advisor has the ability to create value within a specialization without any concessions from a carrier? Like, can, can they, you know, drum up enough value with all the things that you mentioned without having to go back to an insurance carrier and build out a, 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 a program that's going to help them from a rate perspective and whatnot? Well, I, I, I guess, Ryan, I, I would say empirically, yes, right? I mean, yes, because that, that has to be true. Um, given at the top end of the spectrum where there's so much self-insuring from a, from a client. So that clearly is not the carrier providing that that's someone else providing that. Um, so, so I think at a highly evolved um, risk management firm, yeah, they are, they're providing the specialization and they're providing the, the knowledge transfer to help those businesses perform better and it's not the carrier at all um now that's not to say that i think in mid-market carriers who have specialization that have specialization can perform wonderfully well and, and really partner with um with brokers on a very strong manner to to deliver for customers i know you know tech and life science we worked with chubb and with travelers extensively and we worked with their teams and, and, and leaned on them a great deal as a middle market broker and doing middle market business. Um, I think, again, as you go up market, once you get into captives and other more, more risk management techniques that become, um, you know, leaning towards self-insuring, then, then it's, it's more the risk advisor that, that is carrying more of the specialization and knowledge. Yeah, I think it's a good exercise for firms to do as well. You know, I mean, we don't want to necessarily rely on our carriers. We want to use that as a tool when appropriate. But we want to build the value as well for our clients that that they look to us for that value as the advisor, right? Yeah, and I think I think Elliot, to your point, you know, you can get a great deal of information simply by understanding your current clients. And and it, to your example, if I'm out and I have ten churches that I work with, it, you know, understanding those ten churches gives me a great sense of what it would take to go deliver value to the eleventh. Um, and and I think that's absolutely a big part of it. Now, you know, I wouldn't I wouldn't advocate for any generalist producer to say, okay you know, get rid of two thirds of your books. They can just specialize in one thing. I, I wouldn't advise that. Yeah. Um, but I would advise newer people into the industry have a specialization, have, have two or three industries that, that you're going to know as much as the business owner knows. Um, and to the more experienced people, you know, you're going to lose some accounts every year. So as you're replacing, um, work into a specialization where you become a knowledge provider for those firms and, and where you're providing knowledge and value on that level. Um, you're not going to get 
you're not going to get fired because someone else had a two cent cheaper rate. <laughs> yeah. 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 So I think that that's a, a good spot on that one. Like that's a lot in. So the three, three buckets that we we're talking about earlier that you were, you were referencing for well-run firms have solid leadership, strong strategy, and a capital structure to support one and two, right? And we've been talking a lot about particularly probably strategy and things that we can do from a strategic perspective to grow and whatnot. I'm curious though, the number three there to pivot for a minute. Um, I don't think that uh, unique capital structures is explored a lot in our industry or talked about, you know, and I'm curious what you meant by the capital structure to support one and two, um, you know, the different options that are out there. Just, just what do you mean when you say that, that we need a capital structure to support one and two? I think in any business, right, they need some level of, of capital to redeploy back into the industry or back into the business. So if, if they are in many firms, that's going to be profit that, that supports it. Um, but especially in our industry and in insurance distribution, it's, it's more than just the profit of the firm. There's also um, M&A capital that's required. There's also capital for technology purchases, for staffing. Um, you need a you need a balance sheet in today's world. It's it it it's it's a little bit different maybe than it was 20 years ago. So I think you have to have a capital structure and a capital strategy to support what you're trying to do. Now, conversely, I would say um, strategy and leadership come first, right? You, you should the capital structure should support leadership and 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 strategy. Um, if you have all the capital in the world, but don't have leadership and don't have strategy, that's just a great way to take a lot of capital and make it a little capital. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, the reverse of what we're talking about, right? Um, I think so. No, I think uh, I think that's super important. I mean, so if you're a, a firm, high growth firm, let's say, and you're trying to um, you know get to the next stage, is there? Outside of just reinvesting profit, is there anything that you know you've seen that firms have done uniquely to go get maybe outside capital to utilize debt to you know anything that that you know maybe I'm already reinvesting my profits to a very high level and um, you know or I want to I'm buying out a another uh, shareholder. So, you know, a lot of my profit that I'm bringing in is going to that. Like how else could we go get capital from a strategic perspective to support our, our strategy? Yeah. So, so in that space, Elliot, I, I think is really interesting. And, and especially at the current evolution of our industry, um, there's, you know, when I started in this industry, if you wanted to take debt, um, you know, banks really didn't understand this industry. So, so as, as an owner of an entity, you know, my house was on the line. I had to pledge my house and all my personal assets and everything else. Now, lending institutions, debt facilities certainly understand the value of this industry. And, and that has now become a professional transaction, not a personal transaction. Um, further on the equity side of it, on, on the equity portion of capital, you see a number of firms, both anything from um, family office type facilities to to um, private equity firms to all, you know all sorts of capital providers 
that are now interested in, in joining firms even on a minority equity level. And so certainly within AssureX, we've seen that as you know, IMA very publicly has, has taken minority level uh, equity investment into that firm. And it's certainly accelerated their, their growth opportunity and, and they've used it incredibly effectively to, to support growth. Um, our, you know, our partner firms, Unison, which, which is the combination of RCMD and Oswald, um, have done just an incredible job. I mean, it, truly amazing what they've done by taking uh, minority capital from Peloton and which is essentially, um, you know, funded largely from Canadian teachers pension and, and, um, which is my understanding. I, I Not the bike company. Not the bike. Correct. Correct. Not the bike company. No, not the bike company. No, um, investment company. But and they similarly have taken a minority share of equity and and will use that equity to help you know help generate the fuel to grow that firm. So um, yeah, there the availability of capital uh, is is greater today than it's ever been in our industry now. The providers of that capital are astute business people, right? They they want to know that there's leadership that they can believe in and count on to deliver results, and there needs to be a strategy that that the uh, capital provider can believe in that will deliver results. and um, And I would share with you that that those firms are delivering out, you know, outsized results. They're delivering strong results, and 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 that's what happens when you have. Very strong leadership, a great strategy, and then the capital support to support those two. Yeah, I think it's an exciting time uh, in the industry from that perspective uh, for everything you mentioned, just because the the opportunities are, uh, there are way more opportunities to get capital to grow and to do the things that we want to do. And as, as we're seeing, there's a lot of these younger firms, newer firms that might be, you know, maybe their firm sold to a large national or something, and and they wanted to break off and start their own um, that are just doing some really cool stuff. You know, they're nimble, they're small, they they yeah. can pivot. And I think once they get their models figured out, they're gonna they're gonna be in a position to grow quickly because of access to capital, because of things like this, where they don't have to sell to your point to majority of the firm, they don't have to go get PE money or things like that. There's just so many different opportunities out there. Yeah, and it, you know it's interesting, Elliot. You look at a firm today, and if if um, if there's a a sole individual today that said, "Okay, I want to go start my own agency tomorrow," well, you know, working with Applied Systems, they could easily have their own CRM system with with an incredibly rich array of of automation all around serving the end customer. Um, Carrier contracts, if they don't want to get them directly, there's any number of entities that they can go through to access carrier contracts. Um, you know, base level service uh, support is available, whether it's through Resource Pro or Patra or services like that. My goodness, I mean, it, it would take you about a week to figure out how to stand up your own agency as a sole individual. And I can tell you 20 years ago, that that wasn't remotely the case. You, there was no way you could do that. And, and so um, to some extent, 
it's easier than ever to be entrepreneurial in this industry and to really carve out a niche for yourself and do something special. Um, and yet at the end of the day, it's all about the customer. It's all about that end consumer that are you really delivering a product and resource knowledge to be something more than just the guy that ha or the girl that has the insurance policy. Because if you're only delivering the insurance policy, if that's your sole value, well, we just stated that there's not much value in that anymore. Yeah. yeah. So, so it has to be something more than that. So firms that do that either individually or figure out how to do that within systems and structures. And it's a bright future. It really is. It's an incredibly bright future. Dean, I got a one-off for you real quick before we wrap up. Um, part of, this is just my thoughts. I don't have any evidence to back any of this up. But um, when I look at other industries, the way that the end user pays for goods and services kind of helps articulate the value, right? Of it kind of, it shows where the value lies, if you will. Yeah. And the insurance industry, you know, doesn't operate like that. We still get paid to deliver our value through delivering a product. So I guess my question is, do you envision, is there any point in the future in which you envision where we could completely strip out commissions and charge a fee for uh, the services that we're providing as risk advisors. Yeah, Ryan, it's a really interesting point. So I, I gave a talk about three years ago, um, and and part of that talk was one of the long-term trends I see in our industry is transparency. And think transparency, not like Elliot Spitzer transparency, as in what what's the, you know, what's the contingent income you're getting. Don't don't think about that as transparency. Think about a transaction with Amazon as transparency, where if I buy something from Amazon, I know what the product cost, I know what the government is taking out of it, I know what the shipping cost was on it. And I know any other value provider in that chain. So, so there is complete transparency. Everybody knows exactly what the costing structure was in that transaction. And I think that day's coming for our industry. I, I really do. And, and um, COVID actually probably slowed that down a little bit. But I, I think that is going to continue to accelerate as well. Now, again, on the smaller, on the smaller end of the of the scale, uh, you know. Uh, Joe's shoe shop on Main Street that that has a premium of of a thousand dollars. What what's that going to look like? I don't know that there will be as much transparency in that. But but for the firm that is paying a mid six figure premium, that firm is going to want to understand what the risk sharing cost of that is, what the claims processing portion of that is, what the advisory component of that is. I, I mean it. I believe there's going to be much greater transparency in that in years to come. Yeah. And by the way, that's a good thing if yeah. you actually deliver value to customers, right? So, so if you're on the front of, of truly having a heart for delivering value to customers, that's a good thing, not a bad thing. Yeah. Um, if you're, you know, if you're sitting in your Barca lounge and waiting for your next renewal, 
um, and having your, your <laughs> service staff take care of it, well, it's not as good a thing. Then. Yeah. yeah. Or if you're on the smaller end of the spectrum, right? If your target market is the $1,000 in revenue shoe shops, it's going to be hard to articulate a certain amount of value for what you're getting paid. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and I think in some of those cases, um, you know, you'll see insurance embedded in in product that that will disintermediate the insurance transaction completely. And and again, that's not a bad thing. It's just an evolution of of how how an industry changes. Yep, you're already seeing that in some cases. You know, absolutely. It's, yeah, it's out there. Yeah, for sure. So. Well, wow, that was an awesome conversation, Dean. I think we could probably continue going all day, but uh, uh, I enjoyed that. I appreciate you you spending some time and coming on, and uh, I know you, you're a busy guy and uh, you're going to be doing some traveling here, so stay safe. Yeah, hey, guys, I appreciate it. It's always fun to see you guys. I, I hope to see you back in Nebraska again soon. Um, be well and, and uh, take care. Thanks yeah. for the time today. Thanks, Dean. Talk soon. Thanks, hey, Dean. Bye. Thank you for tuning in to Getting Past the Premium. We are excited to continue breaking down barriers and finding solutions together. If you would like to reach out regarding anything you heard in today's episode, find links and contact info in the description. Until next time, have a great day, and let's continue getting past the premium.